In a couple of weeks, we will finish up our series, Names for God. Then we'll have a special treat for you the first Sunday of January. Be a guest pastor. I'm going to leave it at that for now. And then we will get back to Luke. And so this is our 14th week through the names of God. And so to get us thinking well on the name of God before us this morning, I figured we'd play a little song association. I'm going to give you the name of an artist or a musical group, and then you give me what you think is their best-selling or most famous song of all time. Okay, there's no right or wrong, but I got what Billboard would say. So as an example, if I said Queen, you would say... Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what a lot of people would think about. All right, y'all ready? Got your thinking cap on? Ready. All right, here we go. Elvis. Jailhouse Rock. It's Now or Never was actually listed as one. So. Um, the Beatles. Hard Day's Night. Hey, June. Said she loves you and I want to hold your hand. I could get I want to hold your hand. All right, Garth Brooks. Shameless, The Dance. Friends in Low Places. The Dance and Friends in Low Places. Michael Jackson. Thriller. All of them. <laughs> Billy Jean. Yes, number one. Now I got these all over the place, David. Beethoven. <laughs> Ode to Joy, Symphony Number no. Nine. Actually, I would have thought Fifth Symphony, but Handel. You know who Handel was? Mm-hmm. Messiah. Messiah. Right. Uh, Matthew. Uh, Kayla, some of y'all may know. Imagine Dragons. Some of you are like, who's that? Matthew, who's Imagine Dragons? Best song. Radioactive. Maroon 5. That's uh, Adam. Levine. Moves like Jagger. Aretha Franklin. Now that's back in y'all's realm, right? <laughs> They're like, now I can answer. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Whitney Houston. I will always love you. Justin Timberlake. All of them. <laughs> Can't stop the feeling. Will ought to be here for this one. Leonard Skinner. Free bird. Free bird. Coach, what would you say is the Gaithers? Uh, probably you see the one that he wrote about. There's something about that name. I, this didn't have any particular, but because he lives, he touched me because with a couple. He lives, one I'm yeah. trying to think of. Fanny Crosby, do y'all know her? No. You ought to. She wrote a bazillion hymns, and they're all in your hymn book. Blessed Assurance is one. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. What about New Song? I don't know if it's their best selling or whatever, but it's my personal favorite is Arise My Love. Um, Jim Croce. We're going back to my time. Y'all know Jim Croce? Bad, bad Leroy Brown. And Time in a Bottle. Or Janis Joplin. Y'all even know who Janis Joplin was? Peace of My Heart. Me and Bobby McGee. All right, and here's the big one, the one that started this whole point four. Amy Grant. Hell should die. Hell should die. Did y'all remember Amy Grant sang it before we sang it this morning? Mm-hmm. Had you ever heard it before this morning? Yeah. 
Well, maybe you knew some or all of the lyrics, but the big question is this. Do you know the artist who inspired the song? And so with regards to El Shaddai, what's the etymology? Remember the law first mentioned. Where is El Shaddai first mentioned in Scripture? Where is the name found most in Scripture? What's the word actually mean? What picture does a good word study paint us of God's nature and character behind the name? With regards to El Shaddai, what's the anthropology? We've said bad news is life has problems. The good news is God has a name for every single one. So who in Scripture experienced this name of God? And under what circumstances? And how did their encounter with El Shaddai affect their lives? And how might it affect our lives? And with regards to El Shaddai, what's the sociology? Based on these first two I mentioned, what should be our response to knowing God is El Shaddai? Faith is belief with legs on it. Well, what does faith in El Shaddai look like? How do we, quote-unquote, walk it out? So we're going to seek the answers to all of those and some more things this morning as we explore this 14th name of God, El Shaddai. There's many uh, passages we could use, but we're going to read from Genesis 17. So uh, turn to Genesis 17 if you're not already there. And stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis 17, this is the law of first mention. This is where it's first mentioned in Scripture, so we will read that, but we will look at several other places that this name is found in Scripture. So Genesis 17, verses 1 to 8, Moses writes, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. In other words, he said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. You notice the response to when you're shown God and his name and his character? It's to worship. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. What tense is that there I have made you? It's done. I have made you. Abraham had no kids at this point. God says something, it's done. It's as good as done. Amen? Amen. That's why Jesus said it is finished. It's over. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come for you and I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. The word of God to the people of God and the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your many blessings. Father, I pray. As David said, how appropriate, Father, that he would pick a song that says, Here I am to worship. Because, Father, when Abraham was met with El Shaddai, he fell on his face and worshipped. And so, Father, we come today. That's why we're here. We're here to worship you, and we're here for you to show us what it means that you are El Shaddai, not only on the pages of Scripture, but also on our own lives as well, Father. So we ask that you would just write your story upon our heart and write your story in our lives, Father, that we can worship you as only you deserve to be. But Father, we can go out and show the world what it means that you are El Shaddai and that we can be your God and you can be and we can be your people. 
We ask that you would forgive us in the many ways in which we failed you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, so there's going to be three things we're going to look at. The first is El Shaddai, the etymology or etymology. It's a big fancy word. It's a $100 word for a $2 concept that basically means this. Word study. What does the word mean and where did it come from? And so I've told you many times and I want to encourage you again to learn to do word studies from Scripture. Now you don't have to be a Hebrew or Greek scholar to do them and you don't even have to do them to get the proper understanding of a verse or a passage. But let me give you an illustration that I hope will help you to encourage you to learn to do them. If you don't do a word study of a passage, then here's what happens. It's like eating a plain steak with no seasoning and a plain baked potato with no seasoning. It's going to nourish you, but it has zero flavor. Now, if you eat a plain steak, ain't got no salt, no pepper on it, and a plain baked potato, ain't got no salt and no pepper on it, well, that meal gets you for another couple hours or potentially even a day nourished on it. Yes. Same thing. If you come to God's Word and you can take and extract the meaning out of it and you can eat on that Word, the bread of life, and you can be nourished on it. Right? But now, I don't know how you like your steaks and your baked potatoes, but when I do eat a baked potato, I like everything on it. And when I do have a steak, as uh, Vicki will uh, attest to you, when we're in the restaurant and the lady says, uh, can I bring you some steak sauce with that? I tell her, ma'am, if I need steak sauce with this, y'all going to take it back because that means it's terrible. You should have seasoned it. It should be well done. Not well done, but it should be taste good, right? And so a word study will then take it from a plain steak and a plain baked potato to the best steak you've ever had in a loaded baked potato. You understand what I'm talking about? So let me give you a couple of examples we've used before. The word love. If I say love, then there's four Greek words that go with that that mean lots of different things. And Vicki can tell you when I take couples through premarital counseling, that's one of the words that we talk about all the time. And I tell them it's like a fire. And so there's three different words there. There's eros, philos, and agape. And however much heat you want to warm up your marriage and warm up your house is how many of those logs of each being each other's best friend, you know, eroticism, and also that sometimes even though that person is annoying, you're still going to love them. The more logs you throw on the fire, the more heat in the home. And see, when you do a word study like that, it makes a lot more sense than just saying, I love Vicki Cook, right? And just like Marty talked about this morning when I preached at Brandon's church, I did a word study on the word zeal and consume. The word zeal is an onomatopoeia. It means to boil. That's how we should be for Jesus Christ. We should be boiling. And the word consume, it says that zeal for the Lord's house, consume Jesus, literally means to eat alive. And isn't that what happened? He literally was eat alive. He was destroyed because he was so zealous for Lord's house. Or like Marty talked about this morning, to know, repent. Repent, we've talked about it, is metanoia. Meta, to change, noia, mind. A change in mind that results in a change in action. If someone has truly repented of their sins, then they've agreed with God about their sins, and they've not just agreed about it or been sorrowful about it, they've then done something about it. It's resulted in that they were walking this way, and now they're walking completely this way, right? So to do these word studies really helps us and gives us some flavor to it. So let's look at this word, 
El Shaddai. It occurs seven times in the Old Testament. Shaddai occurs 48 times in the Hebrew Bible, 31 times in the book of Job alone. So the place where it's mentioned first is Genesis 17.1. The place you're going to find it the most is Job, which is very significant because we're going to look at that here in just a little bit in Job's life. The word is always in poetic sections of Scripture. So it's God's name. It's, a, it's poetry that it's flowing out of. And there's lots of debate of what this word Shaddai means and where it came from. And so it's kind of like shades of meaning. It's not like you can say Shaddai, you know, like love. How would you define love? It's kind of difficult to define that, right? It's got various shades of meaning. Shaddai has various shades of meaning as well. We can't just say it means like Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is your healer. That's what it means. Now it has lots of concepts that flow out of that, but it means healer, right? And so I'm going to give you three things, ABCs, based on three different roots of this word to put down under etymology. The first is almighty. Alright, look at Genesis 17, 1 again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. How does your Bible translate that? I am God, what? Almighty. Almighty. And so we will look in Ruth 1.20 in just a little bit. But this morning I read from Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. So pretty much every time you see this word translated in our modern Bibles, the 48 times, it's translated Almighty. And I painstakingly went through the 48, and it is translated Almighty every time. And so the reason for that is that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates it as all-powerful or Almighty. The Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates it as omnipotent or almighty. And so that's why it's in our modern Bibles as that, almighty. As one person said, it's more out of enthusiasm than good etymology or good word study. And another pastor said there's zero linguistic basis to support the idea that El Shaddai means God Almighty. So why did I put A there? Because that's how it's translated in your Bible, first off. And because the first root that I want you to uh, put in your notes is that the first root word of this means mountain. So it could be that El Shaddai is better translated this, the God of the mountain. And what is a mountain? What is Mount Everest? It's the highest place on planet Earth, right? And so God is almighty. He is the highest, right? As creator, he is almighty, isn't he? As you look out over the universe and think that God is mindful of you, that's a staggering thought in the grand scheme of the massive universe that he created, right? As miracle worker, he is almighty. That Jesus could take five loaves and two fishes and feed 20,000 men, or 20,000 men, women, and children with that, 5,000 men, that he could walk up to a dead man and touch him and say, arise, and give him back to his mother like he did in Luke 7 with the widow of the, nine, the uh, widow at Nan. He is almighty. Amen? And so scripture and experience teach us that, but really that's not what the word 
means. Alright, so the second thing is, the B is breast. So the second root word that this comes from is breast. In fact, that's how it's translated in Song of Solomon 113. And in a lot of other uh, passages in Scripture, the root of this word breast is actually translated field. So think about it. What do fields do? They produce crops that sustain, nourish, satisfy. Breasts produce milk which sustains, nourishes, satisfies. Many times we talk about God being a father to us, right? But Scripture also teaches that He is a mother, that He is a sustainer, nourisher, satisfier. So you could translate El Shaddai, probably the best translation of it, is not only the God of the mountain, but this, the God, our sustainer, our nourisher. Alright, the third and final root I want you to know, and that's the C, is this, contend. The reason the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible, translated this word as almighty, is they knew that the word Shaddai came from a root verb, Shaddad, which listens to this, what it means, overpower or destroy. Overpower or destroy. And it's translated that way 57 times in the Bible, 26 times in the book of Jeremiah. And some people would say, well, I just don't buy that because that seems to go against the nature of God. And I would say, what Bible have they been reading? You know what I mean? Y'all may have to listen to me without this thing. Maybe the battery, because every time I move it, are y'all okay to hear me without it? You can. Pull that if I'm staying in front of it, that should work. All right. But I, I'm wondering what Bible have they been reading? Don't you see God dealing violently with men in Scripture? And why is it? Because God, man, has dealt violently with God to begin with. And robbing his glory, committing cosmic treason, rebellion. So turn, and not only that, the prophets, Isaiah and Joel, would disagree with anybody that would refute that translation. So turn to Isaiah 30, 13, 6. I'm going to give you two examples here from Isaiah and Joel. Both Isaiah and Joel have a little word play. In which they use this word. Isaiah 13, 6 says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. But this is the word play. As destruction from the destroyer it will come. And so, Joel. If you want to turn to Joel. Find Amos that we preached through and Joel's right before it. Joel 1.15. It basically says the same thing. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, and as destruction from the destroyer it comes. Not to mention that the book of Psalms and experience show that man mocks and plays games with God. He contends with God, and God often contends back, right? And so those are the three 
ways in which you ought to think of it as kind of the shades of meaning, almighty, breast, and contend. And we're going to see as we look at how this is shown in the uh, people's lives in Scripture, how each of these characteristics appears in their life, whether it be the 15th century B.C. or 21st century A.D. Alright, so turn back there to Genesis 17. We're going to look at El Shaddai, the anthropology. And anthropology is simply the study of humans. And so you've heard me say, if you take one phrase away from this uh, series on the names of God, it's this. The bad news is life has problems. The good news is God has a name for every one of them. So who in Scripture experienced this name? We're going to look at three people that experienced this name on the pages of Scripture. And the first is Abraham. Abraham was burdened. So you know the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, he's 75. God calls him out of idolatry, makes a covenant with him, one that's everlasting to give him a seed, land, nation, and divine blessing and protection. And a covenant is a formal official agreement that God makes with us. It's legally binding. We're under the new covenant. All of us that have trusted Christ as Lord entered into this new covenant. What do we talk about when we read passages before we take communion? We talk about that. This is the new covenant in my blood. And so Genesis 13 to 14, Abe's faithful to worship and serve God. He's patiently waiting on the covenant. Genesis 15, doubt starts creeping in. He's probably wondering, is God's promise ever going to come to fruition? And can I just throw in there that sometimes it's easier for us to believe in God's power on a grand scale that he created the Grand Canyon than it is for me to believe in the power in my life that he can keep one single promise. And isn't that true? I believe that he created this whole universe out of nothing. Do you believe that? I don't care what some pastors are saying, how crazy it may be, but the virgin birth was the virgin birth. Amen? Amen? And the resurrection... We believe that God is almighty and powerful to do those things, but then do I believe 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that if I'm tempted, no matter what the temptation, God's going to make a way for me to get out of it. I don't believe that, but I believe that He created this whole universe out of nothing. We believe in these same things, but then when life hits, our marriage starts to have problems, kids become you know, an issue, whatever it may be, then we start to believe that God is going to leave us or He's going to forsake us. And so we believe sometimes more in His power on a grand scale than we do on a little bitty scale to keep one promise in my life. And so Abram begins to question God. And he just assumes since God hadn't given him any offspring, the heir God intends to fulfill the covenant. It's got to be somebody born in his own house, not of him. As Tony Evans says, Abe went logical on God. And don't we do that? Now, if God, then this. And since you haven't done this, then this. And God's more than logic, amen? And so God responds quickly and He says, No, there's a child coming from your own body. He reaffirms the covenant, Genesis 16. Abe's got this new information. He ought to be just jumping up and down, believing the Lord. And what's he do? He and Sarah take things into their own hands. Rut-row, as Scooby-Doo used to say. And so what happens is they suffer from the Ishmael syndrome. You know what the Ishmael syndrome is? God must need some help, so let me help him out, and then you mess it up even worse than it was before. That's the Ishmael syndrome. And not only that, Sarah blames 
the Lord. He says the Lord's the one that's at fault for all this. And as Paul Harvey says, you know how devastating this decision was because you know why there's jihad today? Because Christians and Muslims both believe that Abraham is the father of whatever faith is correct. But we believe in one son, Isaac, as the promised son, and they believe in Ishmael as the promised son. Even today, that decision is playing out before our lives. And so, turn with me to Psalm 13. We looked at this last week in Sunday school. I imagine this is probably what Abraham and Sarah were hollering out. Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You ever felt like that? How long will you hide your face from me? Lord, why haven't I heard from you? Why haven't you sent me a text message? Why haven't you sent me a Snapchat? A tweet? Why haven't you friended me on Facebook? I need an answer, Lord, and I need it in hardcore writing. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? You ever thought that? How long am I going to have to put up with this pain? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Because you know the devil was doing a jig in Abraham's head. Well, you know, there's got to be some reason why God's not keeping this promise, and it's got to be you. Don't we all suffer from this how long? How long before I find a mate? How long before you fix my marriage, God? How long before you save this person in my family? How long before you change this child or I choke them? How long before you get me the job? How long before you grow the church like I think it ought to be? And it's precisely in the middle of that that God comes and says who He is. El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty. I'm powerful enough to do it. I don't care if you're 99 or 199. Amen? Amen. He's sustainer. He said, I have made you. I will make you. His word is as good as done. The problem is we then contend with Him. And He contends with us. You know why? Because He's more interested in you looking like His Son than you staying where you are. And so He comes to Him a third time. This time's Abe's 99, 24 years since this original promise. You think you'd given up? Think you'd say, this just ain't never going to happen. God comes and tells him, what he says here, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He says, I'm El Shaddai, sustainer. And so, um, as we said, life has problems. Abraham was burdened. And God's got a name for every problem we face, El Shaddai. So think about those three ways that we talked about El Shaddai can be translated. Almighty. He created the universe out of nothing. In Genesis 18, it says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Don't you think, like I said, whether they were 99 or 199, that God could cause life to spring from their dead, seemingly bodies? And then breaths. He's sustainer of the covenant. Look at what I said. He said there in verse 5, I have made you. 
I'm going to sustain you and I'm going to nourish you and I'm going to keep this promise. And then contend. You know 24 long years Abraham's going, how much longer, God? How long before this all plays out? Well, just trust and obey because El Shaddai is on the job. And so let me ask you, are you burdened today? Are you potentially suffering from Ishmael syndrome? You think you've got to help God out? You're going to mess it up worse. Are you crying, how long, Lord? And get to know El Shaddai and walk before him wholeheartedly just as God called Abraham then and us now to do. Alright, so Abraham was burdened. The second person I want us to look at is Naomi, and Naomi was bitter. So turn to Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. The opening words of the book of Ruth tell us in the days when judges ruled Israel, there was a famine in the land. There's a Bethlehemite. His name is Elimelech. And as a result of the famine, he moved to Moab with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. And Elimelech, we're told, dies, leaving Naomi a widow. And their sons take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And surely Naomi's thinking, well, now life has some security and promise and hope. Now I'll have some grandkids, and that'll ease the sting of Elimelech's passing. And finally, some happiness and some joy. And so ten years passes, and bam. The worst thing that could have happened, happens, and her two sons die. And I put in my notes, her life reads like a Nicholas Sparks movie, uh, novel. And so you think about it, in those days, a widow had no social status. She had no economic means to survive, not to mention she's a foreigner in a foreign country. You think anybody cares if she gets any food whatsoever? She's got no grandkids, no kids, no husband. She's got to feel just poor, wretched, and bitter. Must have felt like she'd been kicked around like a football. And look at what she says in verse 8. We see into her thought process. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, May the Lord deal kindly with you. You know what is implicit in that statement? Because he hasn't dealt kindly with me. And look at verse 20. She says that. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And that's that word contend. God is contending with her. This is part of the growing process. And so having heard the Lord's broken the, fam the famine, Naomi sets out for Bethlehem. She tells her two daughter-in-laws to go back to their mother's houses and not accompany her. She pleads for him a second time to do so, and Orpah complies. And you may know she does a third time, and Ruth refuses to do so. And look at verse 16 and 17. Ruth famously replies, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Here it is. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also if anything but death parts me from you. In other words, she said, Till death do us part, I ain't leaving your side, Naomi. And so they make their way back to Bethlehem proper, and look at what we're 
told in verse 19. The whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? Nobody even recognized her. Why do you think that is? Imagine a hard life. Exactly. You know people that look 40 and they're 20? You know people look 100 and they're 50? Because stress in life has impacted them so. I imagine she probably was walking like this. Just stooped over. You know how Eeyore looked? And they get that look on their face. What we call flat affect and just depressed and look like Eeyore. She's probably wrinkled beyond her age. We jokingly say the lights are on but nobody's home. That's probably how she looked. You know what her problem was? If before was Ishmael syndrome, she's got Naomi syndrome. And let me tell you, I've suffered from it. Maybe you have. Here's Naomi syndrome. You focus only on the negative and you leave out the positive. Amen. Coach, how many stories have you told me down through the years of people in the church, especially leadership, that suffer that syndrome? He has told me so many stories, and that's what we do. We focus so much on the negative, we completely leave out the positive. And if we sat down with a piece of paper, and we just put a big plus at the top on one side, and a big minus on the other side, and we just started writing. Oh, I'm, well, I'm going to go to the negative first, because I really I got all these negatives. All right, Lord, these are all the negatives. Well, you get about five or seven of them. Now you're kind of stumped. Now you got to really think. But if you really went over to the positive and you started writing down the positive, you're going to have to get another sheet of paper. Think about it. Yes, there was some negative in her life, but she's got a full full harvest prospect. Ruth has said what? Till death do us part. I ain't going anywhere. And guess who's in town? Boaz. Who can give her what? grandchildren and a family and food. Not only that, she had the hope that no matter what happened to her in this life, she was going to be with God in the next life forever. Amen? But look at how she responds. Four times in two verses, she talks about how the Lord is contended with her. Look at verse 20 again. Do not call me Naomi. In other words, don't call me pleasant because that's what Naomi means. Don't call me pleasant, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. That's what it means. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And so, let me ask you, does she have a point? Are her statements accurate? Yes. Because who's behind all the circumstances of life? God. Turn to Ecclesiastes 7.14. I had a brother one time. You ever had somebody tell you something you just went, I don't even want to acknowledge that. How you doing, man? Got to get Naomi syndrome. Oh, man, Satan's having a field day. You know what he reminded me of? Anything that comes to you 
from Satan had to pass through the hand of God yeah. first. Yeah, that's right. It's like, man, why'd you have to remind me of that? Now you done messed up my, all my Naomi syndrome. <laughs> Look at Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be what? Joyful. Joyful, happy. In the day of adversity, do what? Consider. Consider. Dr. Moore would say, think well on this, wouldn't he? Think well on this fact. God made the one just as much as He did the other. And the reason God sometimes has given us a day of adversity is because He loves you so so much He doesn't want to leave you where you are. In our uh, devotion that we as leaders are doing through A.W. Tozer this week, he said, when God wants to mold you to look like His Son, He don't take out a manicure set. In other words, He doesn't just pick little bitty hairs off of here and this and that and kind of brush this nice and kindly. He takes a chisel and a hammer. You know what a chisel and a hammer is? It's painful. But God loves us too much to leave us where we're at and sometimes He has to burn the junk out of our life. And the only way He can do that is to contend with us. And so life has problems. Ruth was bitter. But God's got a name for every one of them. Think about it. Almighty. As such, He's sovereign. The book of Ruth is Romans 8, 28 in action before it was ever even penned. God's going to work all things for good. Isn't He? Alright? So then what about um, breath, sustainer, nourisher? Listen to the language of Ruth 4, 13-17, especially 15. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer and may His name be renowned in Israel. Here it is. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Doesn't that sound like the breast part of El Shaddai? He will be your sustainer and your nourisher and your satisfier. And so then she gets to hold Obed, her grandchild, uh, who then becomes in the line of King Jesus. And so let me ask you, are you bitter today? Are you facing the loss of something near and dear in your life? I don't know what it might be and I don't know what exactly it feels like, but can I tell you that God gave His one and only Son and He knows exactly how you feel. You will feel like changing your name from pleasant to bitter. You got the Naomi syndrome, focusing all on the negative and not the positive. And don't forget, God, when He wants to mold you into the image of His Son, He's going to take out a chisel and a hammer to do it. And so if life has drained you, beat you till you don't even look like yourself, get to know El Shaddai and go from bitter to better. Alright, so Abraham was burdened, Naomi was bitter, finally Job was broken. When we're introduced to Job, we're told straight out of the gate, this man was righteous, we're told he was rich, and he was religious. He had taught his sons, his sons would hold a feast on a daily basis and invite his sisters to care for them and to feed them. He had taught his children to love people. And it says that he offered burnt sacrifices for all of his children on a regular basis. He loved God and he loved people. He was a very religious man, a righteous man, and a rich man. So good, 
are so far so good. It's got the makings of a movie produced by Firm Films, which is, you know, facing the giants. And then in the span of seven short verses, it goes from that to that of a Stephen King horror novel. Faster than you can say the first self-righteous church of Pascagoula, four messengers come and say, everything that you've got is what? Gone. 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 And how did Job respond? Look at Job <coughs> chapter 1. Job is just before the book of Psalms. Job 1, 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and, womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord give, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then you get six more short verses and Job himself is hit. Satan strikes him with loathsome bulls from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. Then they add insult to injury. His wife comes and says what? Well, just curse God and die. Well, his friends come and sit with him for a whole week. And the best thing that they did was what? Keep their mouth shut. They just came and they loved on him. That's a lesson for us. Sometimes than, better than trying to explain what God is doing when we have no idea what God is doing, to just come and hug on somebody and show them love is the best thing that we can do. Amen. And so what does Job do? He curses the day he was born. Now he didn't charge God with wrong, but he said, I just wish I had never been born. You ever felt that broken? That miserable? And so they opened their mouths, his friends start to speak, and Dr. MacArthur said all the wisdom of their silence departed. <laughs> and so Eliphaz comes and he basically says, you know, Job, if you'll just admit your sin, you'll be happy again. And Job says, yeah, these are God's judgments, but if I've sinned, you show me where. And so Bildad comes, and y'all have heard me say that truth and love is biblical. Love without truth is hypocrisy, and truth without love is brutality. Well, Bildad just comes beating Job over the head with some truth. He says, Job, you're blowing a lot of hot air. I'm absolutely certain, and so are you. You've sinned and brought this on yourself. Now just admit it and repent. And Job says, you can't dispute God's holiness or claim you're innocent or guilty before God, but I'm a man of spiritual integrity. I don't know what's going on, but it's not because of me. And then Zophar, his third friend, comes, and he's the best of all. He pretty much says, boy, you ain't got no sense. You ain't nothing more than a babbler, is what he says. He says, really, what you deserve is worse than what you got. I mean, friends like that, who needs enemies, right? Job says, well, y'all are a bunch of know-it-alls. When y'all die, wisdom will die too. <laughs> and he says, I might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. I'm innocent before God, but a laughingstock before y'all. And so Job was broken, but El Shaddai was almighty. That's right. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Mm -hmm. Amen. And Job got more at the end than he had to begin with. Breast, he was the sustainer, the nourisher. Contend, I have shared this with so many people. And I pray that you take it and share it with people too. I have told them, if you read the book of Job, it does not teach us this question, why? 
It does not teach the answer to why do we suffer. It teaches the answer of this. How should I suffer? And then, will I stay loyal? One pastor said, when we are most empty, God is most evident. And another said, when you have nothing left but God, then you become aware that God is enough. And that's what Job learned. And so if we're broken today, if life seems unfair, bad things are happening, we won't demand answers, shaking our fists at God. No, He is enough. And stay loyal to Him. Alright, finally, three quick things on El Shaddai, the sociology, which basically means the study of behavior. How should we act, respond, knowing that God is El Shaddai? How can we walk it out? Number one, fall before El Shaddai in reverence. That was Abraham's response. When he was met with El Shaddai, he fell on his face and he simply worshipped. And that should be our response. And you say, well, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what he's thinking. And you know what I say? I don't care. Worship him anyway. Adore him anyway. Praise him all the live long day. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you feel empty, burdened, bitter, broken, praise Him. Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Sing, O earth, His wonderful love proclaim. Hail Him, hail Him, highest archangels in glory. Strength and honor give to what? His holy name. Don't matter what's going on in our life. We can do like Job. At the end of the day, we can say, Blessed is El Shaddai. And fall in reverence before him. Number two, we can run to El Shaddai as refuge. That was the psalmist's response. I read that this morning again, Psalm 91. I think most all of us were here for that, but I'll read real quickly Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. And so... Think about it. We're to take up lodging under the wings of El Shaddai on a daily basis. We don't give him weekend visitation rights. We don't just visit on Sunday. We live there every single day. And when we live there, we get rest and refuge, and when we don't, we get unrest and unease. Alright, number three is trust El Shaddai as rewarder. You know the second highest number of times the name Almighty is used in Scripture outside of Job? It's actually in Revelation. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will make them with a rod of line. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Larry Crabb said the book of Revelation helps us keep believing in Jesus when the evidence makes it difficult. Listen to how Hebrews 12, 2-3 is translated in one translation. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed that exhilarating finish in and with God Listen to this. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, 
whatever. Know that we would live by that, that that would be my personal statement, that no matter what comes in my life, that I will put up with it because I know that a reward is coming. I don't know if any of you got to see George H.W. Bush's funeral this week. I didn't, but I did catch one thing as they were talking about it on the news. And I think they had a little, uh, had a Christmas tree and there was an ornament that they showed that had these words. It made me just want to cry. Knowing that he had got to hear those words. And it said, well done, good and faithful servant. No matter what life brought to our President Bush, he knew God was a rewarder, that El Shaddai was his rewarder, and now he's getting to enjoy that in a way he never, ever imagined. So we started out this morning playing a little song association. So how better to conclude the message by doing the same, but this time I'm going to give you some Christmas songs. And we're going to go backwards. I'm going to give you the song, you tell me who sang it. Ready? The Christmas song. Right. And we're like, huh? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Christmas song, Nat King Cole. Last Christmas. Did you say Wham? George Michael. No, George Michael and Wham. Run, run, Rudolph. That's not Cassie's time. Chuck Berry. Wonderful Christmas time. Paul McCartney. I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus. Uh, Michael Jackson. Jackson 5. Jackson 5. White Christmas. Dean Crosby. Sleigh Ride. The Ronettes, the Ronettes. Little Saint Nick. Beach Boys, that's right. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. At one point, everybody. Patsy and Elmo. Jingle Bell Rock. Bobby Helms. Bobby Helms. Coach, you're winning Jeopardy. Rocking around the Christmas tree. Brenda Lee. Blue Christmas. Elvis. Sunday at Christmas. It's kind of a modern one. Stevie Wonder. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Andy Williams. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Famous person. It's a man. A man. Frank Sinatra saying it. Judy Garland made it famous. Santa Claus is coming to town. He made it famous. The boss. Bruce Springsteen. Vicky's favorite Christmas song. Santa Baby. Oh. Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Madonna. Sounds like something. Though. Marilyn Monroe. Or Madonna would sing. Nobody's going to get this. This would be the $1,000 question for Jeopardy. Eartha Kitt. And now I got a new favorite Christmas song that I heard this week. I had never heard this Christmas song. Maybe some of y'all had. To Heck with Old Santa Claus. You know who sings that, David? Coach? Loretta Lynn. You have to look it up and listen to it. 
My previous favorite was Feliz Navidad. Y'all know who sang that? Jose Feliciano. Oh. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Y'all are showing your age. <laughs> Alright, Meli Kalikimaka. And no, National Lampoons didn't sing it. Bean Crosby, absolutely. He was on there twice. Alright, the last one. You ready? You'll understand the point of it here in a second. Jesus, take the wheel. Carrie Underwood. Now I know what y'all were saying. That ain't no Christmas song. I'd say, have you not read? Listen to the lyrics. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow white Christmas Eve. Let me tell you why it's truly a Christmas song. Because the best present you can give yourself and the best present I can give myself is to give Jesus the will. To give El Shaddai the keys to my life. Remember what we talked about, A, B, C. Do you believe that He is almighty? That He can do anything and everything in your life and nothing is too hard for the Lord? Do you believe El Shaddai, He's your sustainer, breast, He alone is enough? Contender, what happens... There's two people in a car and they're fighting for the steering wheel. It's going to be disaster, isn't it? So if we're burdened like Abraham, bitter like Naomi, broken like Job, we need to fall in reverence, run his refuge and trust him as a rewarder. We won't be sorry because Isaiah 49, 23 says, those who hope in me, El Shaddai, will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your many blessings. Just thank you for... All that you do for us, Father, I just ask that as we go to our homes that you will just keep us safe. And Father, we just uh, pray that you would give us a good week. And Father, I pray for each and every one of us that you would uh, give us an opportunity, Father, to share the gospel this week. And that, Father, you will open the eyes of whoever you put across our path. Father, that through the Holy Spirit that you will just quicken their hearts <coughs> to hear the truth that we have to give them. And Father, help us to be, no matter how busy we might be in that moment, to take that divine appointment and use it because, Father, every person on this planet needs to hear today about Jesus, the gift that is too wonderful for words. And so I pray for this time of invitation that you'll bless it and the remainder of our service, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So given it's kind of a small group, I'm going to end this invitation real quickly and easily because I know most all of you very, very well. I don't know your heart like the Lord does, but I know... Everybody that is here knows the Lord. Okay? If there's something that you'd like to come quickly as we sing an invitation, let's do that. But after we do the uh, offering, I'd like us to do, close the service a little different. And grab a hand and get in a circle and pray like we talked about this morning in Sunday school. Brothers and sisters, Marty and I were talking this past week if you don't understand that the devil is dancing a jig on the head of everybody around us, you got your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. And if we don't understand with what has been going on in our world, that the time for Jesus to come back is here. <coughs> We've been in the last days since Paul wrote the book of 2 Timothy. It ain't a question if we're in the last days. 
We're beyond the last days. And Satan knows his time is short. The problem is each and every one of us gets so busy we won't stop and share the gospel. We're about to leave out these back doors. And we're not just leaving out of here saying we had a good church service and to go home and get there safely and hurry up and get our roast or whatever we're going to do and go on to Monday. We're going to the mission field, brothers and sisters. And so I want us to get together as a family of believers. Marty and I talked about that yesterday. If we're a family of believers, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray together. And I want us to pray that God will give each and every one of us in that circle a gospel conversation this week, and we will be faithful to use it. Okay? So if there's anything as we sing a song and then have our offering, uh, let's stand and sing the invitation again this morning. Page 134. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength and need is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. all Sin hath left a crimson stain.